Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. I'm so thankful that he brings us here every Sunday morning and we get to hear the word of the Lord. I'm so thankful that the Lord has, gives me another, gives me messages week after week after week because although I know the Bible very well, I, I, uh, I still am very, well, let's just say I don't know where I'm going when I start every week. I just open up with a blank page almost basically for the sermon and I have no idea what I'm going to write and I pray and and God gives me the words. So here we go, another week. Praise be to God. If you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, and uh, then we'll see what the Lord has to say to us for our sermon today. Lord, we just love you, and we praise you, and we thank you, Lord God. And we ask, Lord God, I ask, dear God, that you would speak through me to those that are listening to me in my home and abroad, from those that are in my family here in my house, and the others that have joined us, Lord, and all those all over the world, Lord God, that are joining us every single week and actually every single day. Thank you, dear God, for those precious souls that are seeking you, Lord God. I pray, dear God, that you would use this message, dear God, to impact us all. I pray, dear God, that these words that I speak today and the words that, that are your words, Lord, wouldn't just be more words that I speak, Lord, just floating away into space. I pray, Lord God, that they're words that we would all keep in our hearts. Lord, and I pray that those words would impact us and change us, Lord God. For, Lord, if we're hearers of the word only and we're not doers, then we're fooling ourselves, Lord God. They're, they're give, those words are giving us no benefit. So I pray, dear God, that the words that we hear from you today would be words that change us, Lord. Words that we keep in our hearts and that we do those words, Lord God. We don't just hear them. I ask and pray, dear God, that you would keep distractions to nothing, Lord. today, And I pray, dear God, that you'd keep Satan, Lord, out of our minds. And that you wouldn't let him whisper in our ears as we're listening to this message, Lord. May our minds be crisp and clear hearing your words and your message today. Lord, we love you and we praise you, dear God. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would fall upon us in this room here and those all over the world, Lord, today. Or wherever, whenever they're going to listen to this message, Lord. And Lord, change us. Change us, Lord, and make us more like you. We love you and we praise you and we thank you. And we ask all these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So if you guys want to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46, that's where we're going to be today. That's where we're going to read from today. I just wanted to get you there. And meanwhile, while you're getting there, you can hear my thoughts from last week's message. It happened just as Christ said. When I think of the idea, that whole idea that we spoke on last week, whatever Christ says happens 1,000% as a whole from the beginning of life, in the beginning of creation to, the, to now or into the end of life, I think of what I first thought of this, a solid marble rock or or a, a really strong, like the strongest that you could ever think of, foundation in the whole world that you could ever stand on. Why? Why did I think of this? Why did this picture come into my mind? Because as I was praying and asking God what to give me for this word and this thoughts from last week, I thought of this as I thought of, you know, whatever Christ says comes to pass. And here's why. Because whatever God says stands firm and will come to be just like 
the hardest marble foundation that you could ever think of in your ever, that you could ever, ever, ever think of. That means that anyone that puts their trust in him can have assurance. Not just regular assurance, though. Full assurance in the things that he has said as a firm foundation. And know with certainty that the things that he said are 1,000%. We go way above 100% with God. 1,000% going to happen. There's this song that I love, and it's by this group called by, uh, of King and Country, or King and Country, and it's called Shoulders. And it's one of my most favorite contemporary Christian songs right now, and it starts a little like this. Here's the first couple lines. When confusion's my companion, and despair holds me for ransom. I'm confused. I'm in despair is what they're saying. They say, I will feel no fear. And why? I know that you are near. This is what they say in their song. Second line, when I'm caught deep in the valley, means I, I, I'm far away from everybody. Where, oh my gosh, I'm in the weeds. Oh, when I'm caught deep in the valley with chaos for my company. Chaos, think of chaos. It's, oh, it's everything's exploding around me. Nothing's secure. He goes, I'll find my comfort here. And why? Because I know that you are near. And the only reason they could say that is, is these guys realized that God's promise to always be with them, no matter what they go through, is 1,000% for sure because whatever Christ says comes to pass. 1,000% period the end. The Apostle Paul knew this fact. 2 Timothy 2.19. Uh, he says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation that foundation I thought of, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. Seal. What do you think of when you think of a seal? A permanent thing. Having this seal. The Lord knows those that are His. Some examples of how this firmness of the things that God and Christ say will come to pass in regards to His promises to me, His child, and you, His child, if you're His child, that give me extreme comfort. Number one. One of the biggest tricks that the devil tries to use towards those that are saved, those that are God's children, is this. You're not really saved. Oh, if you were saved, you wouldn't have done that. Oh, you were, you're, you're not saved. How could you be saved and do that? Or how, how could you be? You're not really saved. Oh, God's not real or something like that along those lines. That's the, one of the biggest tricks that Satan use, uses towards God's children. Yet that's a lie. Because God says that when he saves us, he seals us, as we just read, by his Holy Spirit, and that we can't just lose that or misplace that salvation. Oh, wait, where, wait where, did I put my, where did I put my salvation today? The Bible says as long as we abide in Christ, that means rest our hope fully in him, as long as we abide in him, that we're secure. We can never just misplace it or lose it or, or just because we have a thought, oh, you're not saved. That, does, that doesn't mean that you're not saved. That's a lie. Because whatever God or Christ say is 1,000% going to happen. And God says, when I save you, I'm not going to lose you. And you can't just lose me like you lose an old sock in the washing machine, right? Second thing, when times come, right? And sometimes we'll lose our job. 
or sometimes money's tighter. Oh, all of a sudden something happens and your roof falls in or, oh gosh, the car needs a big repair and you don't have the money to fix it. What's the biggest thing that that liar tries to tell Christians, tries to tell those that are God's redeemed? You're in trouble. (gasps) Where's the money going to come from? (gasps) You're going to lose everything. (gasps) You're going to be homeless. (gasps) Liar. God's word says, he says in his word, I'm Jehovah Jireh. That means I am your provider. And if God says that he's your provider and he'll never let you go, that means that he'll provide whatever it is that you need. It'll be in his time, not yours always, almost always. But nevertheless, God will provide whatever you or me need. Number three, if we blow it and sin, right? And then we repent and ask God for forgiveness because that's how the Bible says you're supposed to handle sin. Oh, I sinned. Oh, Lord, geez, I, Lord, I can't believe I did that. Lord, please forgive me for that sin, Lord. And, and oh, Lord, I'm turning away from that sin because that's what the Bible says. Turning away from sin, confessing your sins to God. One of the biggest things that the devil tries to tell you is God didn't forgive you. Oh, God, come on. You look, at, look at all the times that you did that one sin. Or, oh, look at the time. You, you look at how bad that sin was. But that's a lie because the Bible says, God says in his word, and he is, remember, whatever he said comes to pass. One thousand percent, he says, he says, if we repent and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, that's not my main idea to the sermon. I could go on about this all day long, right? But the main point of this thoughts from last week's message is this. We must trust wholly and fully with complete and total assurance in the fact that whatever Christ Jesus says or whatever God says is going to pass 1,000% and we need not to worry ever or doubt what he says ever. Never doubting absolutely the promises that he has given to all of God's children. So Christians, if God or Christ has given you a promise or said something will come to pass like prophecy or like, you know, the things of the end of the world, we talked about this last week, then you need to know that you can take those to the bank and believe them wholeheartedly with all your heart. And when Satan comes up and tells you that those things aren't true, or your own mind comes and tells you that they're not true, you need to tell Satan where to go. Shut up, Satan. Get behind me, like Jesus said. Jesus said, be quiet and get behind me, Satan. And you need to tell your doubt. You need to rebuke your doubt. And you need to tell your brain, shut up, brain. Because you know what? God said this. And because my God said this, there's no doubt. I can't doubt. There's no God's 100%, 1,000%. Whatever he says comes to pass, comes to pass. That's it, period, the end. So, praise be to God that we have to move forward on to, next week's, on to this week's message. But just remember, trust in whatever God tells you. For whatever Christ says will come to pass 1,000%. All right. All right, let's get down to our next message. The title of our new message is The Five Principles Christ Practiced in the Garden. It's kind of a long title this week. They're usually not this long. I'll say it again. The five principles Christ practiced in the garden. Let's read Matthew 26, 
36 through 46, if you would with me, please. And then I'll teach on them. Then the Bible says, Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which we know to be James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch, or you could say pray, with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, again, the same words, saying the same words. What were those words again? Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So last week, remember, we read about Jesus telling his 11 disciples that they were all going to forsake him. Remember, you're all going to leave me. You're all going to forsake me. And what happened, right? They didn't agree. They, no, no, Jesus, you're wrong. No, you got to understand, we're, we're not going to, we don't believe you. We don't, we don't believe that whatever you say is going to come to pass. No, that, that will not happen to us, Jesus. We, we, we reject your word. And of course, we know from history, sadly, what did they do? They all forsook him, as Christ said they would. For whatever Christ says will come to pass. Period, the end, 1,000%. We've already gone through that. <laughs> now, even though they refused to accept what Christ told them, did he hold any grudges against them for that? I mean, that would be kind of hard, right? You're God of all creation, and you, you tell your children, you tell your followers, this is what's going to happen, and then they're like, nah, we don't agree with you. No, you're wrong. And that's, that, that's hard for me. If I know something to be true, right, and I tell somebody something that's true and then they don't believe me, that kind of hurts me. When I'm just a man, I'm flawed. I, in fact, I could be wrong. But God, he's not wrong. He's never wrong, can never be wrong. Does Jesus hold any grudges toward them for doing that? Or was he resentful toward them because he knew that they were all going to forsake him? I mean, after all, he could see into the future, right? Absolutely not. Look at verse 36. He says, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and, to, and, and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. What did he do? He just moves forward with serving God and takes them and he goes and prays. And obviously the fact that he went and he took them to the garden shows me that he forgave them or he never really ever had any bitterness towards them because he took them with him to go do ministry again, right? If you're mad at somebody and you're holding resentment and anger, you're not going to go with them to do ministry with them. You're going to try to leave them behind. But here we see Jesus. What did he do? He takes the disciples and he goes and he prays with them. That was that. Now, today, 
I'm going to teach this section of scripture a little different than normal. Normally, I kind of have a different format, but this week, God kind of spoke tomorrow, and I never would have thought I would have spoken this scripture like this. But over the next eight verses, there are five amazing Christian principles that Jesus practiced in the garden with his disciples that... In my opinion, and this is true because the Bible says too, if you're a Christian, you need to be a follower of Christ. So Jesus did these five principles. He practiced them. There's five principles here. All God's kids, in my opinion, and according to the Bible, it's true too, should practice them all as well. So I encourage you, if you haven't, I know you maybe normally don't, but I encourage you today to take notes on this sermon. Get a piece of paper, get a pencil, and I want you to take notes, and I want you to listen very intently to these five principles that Jesus practices here in the garden with his disciples. And if and here's what I want you to do. If you figure out at the end of this message, I'm not practicing these principles, I want you to get off your duff, and you need to go, and you need to start practicing them. Because as I said earlier, a Christian is a follower of Christ, and if Christ practiced these principles, then so should we be practicing them as well too. So, in verse 36, we already read, Jesus and his disciples go together to the garden where he will soon be betrayed so that he can pray. Why did Jesus go and pray at this specific time with his 11 disciples? Right? He, I mean, he knew what was going to happen, but still he didn't want to go to the cross. Remember that. So here he goes with his 11 disciples and he goes and prays at this specific time. I mean, they could have done anything together. They could have had some fellowship time together. They could have sat around. They could have enjoyed one another's company because Jesus, you know, knew this is going to be my last few moments on earth. Right after this section here, verse 47, it says, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas and one of the 12 with his great multitude came with him. So right after literally this section where he's going to pray, Judas is there with these Roman soldiers. And they're going to take Jesus away, and then pretty soon, he's the very next day, he'll be killed for what you know he stood for. So why did Jesus pray with his 11 at this specific time? Because he knew, you see, he was about to go through a major event in his life. That, my brothers and sisters in Christ, is the very first principle that we see that Christ does here. We see him pray before this major event for God's help and God's guidance. Every Christian, we all know, we don't always know what's coming tomorrow, but we know when we wake up in the morning kind of what our day is going to be like. Most of us have a, a job and most of us are working you know, a certain way every day and we all know the challenges that our jobs bring. For instance, I woke up this morning and I knew that I was going to have to preach today. This is a major event in my life. So what did I do? I practiced this first principle that Christ practiced here, and I prayed, God, give me the strength to preach today. Because it's not easy to stand up here. It's not easy to be known that, you're, that people are listening to you all over the world and, and you, know, you could make mistakes. It's not easy to sit, stand before people. So what did I do? I prayed before this major event in my life, and we see Christ doing that here with his disciples. You see, when we pray for God's wisdom and God's guidance and God's help to go through a major event in our lives, we're saying that we don't know the best way to do it. And I can say that that's true. If I were to ask for a raise of hands today, I would ask, who in their lives have have done things perfectly? Me? That wouldn't be my hand. 
Because when I do things my way, I screw things up. So I need God's guidance. I need God's help to not screw things up. And so I'll close with this first principle saying that every Christian absolutely should always be praying before every major event in their lives, just like we see Jesus do here. And I'll even go a step further. I would say Christians should be praying before everything that they do in life for God's guidance. Every, no matter what it is, even if their days they know are easy. God, help me to be a light for you today. Give me guidance on how you want me to act today. God, give me guidance on, you know, how I should respond when, when people say things to me. We should be praying for God's guidance and help in every area of our lives, not just before major events. I'm moving on. Verse 40, in verse 36, Jesus goes to pray for God's guidance and help. The first major principle we see in today's scripture for this major event he was about to go through, the cross. And he tells all his disciples, he says, stay here in one place. But then he does something a little different. Look at verse 37. And he took with him Peter and James and John, or the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He tells all his disciples to stay in one place, but then he takes what? One, two, and three of his remaining 11 to be nearer to him as he goes to pray. Why does he do that? Jesus teaches his followers, us, a second amazing principle that all Christians need to be practicing. What is that? Every Christian we see here should have at least one, if not two or three or four people, Christians, intimate Christians that they can have close to them. Every Christian should yearn and pray and ask God, God, please put two or three or four really strong believers in my life that I can rely on, that I can, that I can have near to me, that I could be intimate with. I mean, we all go to church, and some churches have hundreds. Some churches have thousands of Christians in them, right? Or people in them, right? Whether they're Christian or not. But in reality, not very many people are my intimate friends. I only have one or two right now. Even though I know lots and lots and lots of people, I only have an intimate couple few people that I can go to and confide in anything. And here we see that Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his intimate close three, away with him while he goes away to pray. While he leaves the other, what, eight, because Judas is gone now, so eight plus three is 11. He leaves the other eight kind of a little bit of a distance away. What benefit does this serve, you may be asking? What benefit does an intimate, close group of Christians have in my life? What, ben- what benefit did it serve Christ here? Verse, th- uh, verse 37 tells us, and it says that as they go, he becomes sorrowful and deeply distressed. Well, we see here, why didn't he become sorrowful and deeply distressed before all the eleven? Because when you have an intimate, close group, you can do what? You can be yourself. You know those in that intimate group that you have that you can tell them anything. You can't just go into a church body and in front of 500 people go, oh, this is my woe. Oh, you can. But about 99% of them are going to be looking at you like you got three eyes and, and you know, 
and four arms, okay? But in, interestingly enough, if the person, if a Christian has three or four, just two or three or four, even one intimate, close brother or sister in Christ, they can bear their soul to them. And that's exactly what we see Jesus do here. He kind of like goes and he just gets away from the main and he gets only these three and the intimate three and he bears his all and he just breaks down before them. Okay. With me, I know this is true with me. This is my exact example with me. This is how my life has been in Christ. I've always known lots and lots and lots of Christians, but only just a few that I could actually break down with and just be myself with and not have to worry about what the whole mass of group is going to say. And when you become open with how you really feel to your intimate Christian friends, you can, verse 38. Then he said to them, notice he starts talking to them now. He says to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. What does he do? He starts talking to them about how he feels. We need to bear our problems to others. When we only keep our problems to ourselves, and we don't ever go to others that are close, and not no, not just anybody now. I'm talking about those that love the Lord, as you love the Lord. Go to somebody that loves the Lord, that's somebody that's intimate and close with you, and you bear your burdens to them, it helps. Here we see Jesus, he tells them how he's really feeling and what's on his mind along with his spiritual needs. And what does he do? He asks them to watch with him. Or you could say watch or pray with me because we know he says that a little farther down. So again, I say this for our second Christian principle here that we see Jesus practice. Every Christian needs at least one, if not two or three close brothers or sisters in a group to bear their soul to win times get rough. Not if times get rough, when times get rough. Our our lives are hard. Life, in fact, is very hard. Life is very difficult. When things get really difficult, we need other people that love the Lord in our lives that can help us through those times that we can tell our burdens to so that they can be praying for us, so that they can be giving us uplifting words, so that they can be an ear. Who doesn't, I mean, everybody, when they're, when they're feeling sorrowful for the, like Jesus fell here, what do they want to do? They want to go to somebody and they want to talk and tell their problems to. No, everybody loves, I know I love it when people have an ear. You know, right? Like this old saying, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. I know I have that problem because I like to talk. But here we see that these guys here were Jesus's like bouncing board. They were there to bounce his problems off of. They were there to be there from the intimate group, and we all need that. That's why that's our second Christian principle that every Christian should be practicing. So first he gets alone with his intimate Christian friends. He feels more comfortable to let his real emotions go. Then he bears his soul to them, and he asks them for prayer. What does he do next? Look at verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He shows us here in verse 39 our third and fourth principles that he practices that all Christians should be practicing. First first one of the two, right? First one, but the third 
principle that all Christians should be practicing. After he goes to his godly human support group, this little intimate small group, he then gets alone with the only one that can really and truly help him. And who is that? God, his heavenly father. And what does he do then? He asks him for help. You see, many people think that they can go to people for help only. Right? People are good to have there to talk to as, a, you know, as somebody that they can touch and they can look at and everything. Everybody needs that, but you cannot only have even that intimate group of Christians that you can bounce yourself off of and you can you know, kind of shoot yourself out there to to help with your problems. Truly, your only real help comes from God. Because I even know with my intimate brothers and sisters throughout the years, that as I bounce how I feel off of them, they'll tell me what they what God's speaking to them. And, I, and I'll, I'll receive it, but I'll be like, yeah, well, you know, okay, thank you. But you know what? I just need to be alone now. And really what I'd say is I don't really want to go be alone. I want to go and be alone with God now. Because even though they may have given me good advice, I need to go be with God now and hear what God has to say, just like Jesus did here. And so many times God will put on my heart, Ed, what they told you is true. See, and then he'll show me places in his word. And, and then I'll surrender to it. And I'll be like, okay, all right, Lord, this is the help I need. And, and so here we see Jesus, the third Christian principle today, getting away from his human support group and going to be alone with God, his one and only true help to ask help from. Psalm 121 verses one and two speaks of this also. Uh, the psalmist writes, I will lift up my eyes to the hills. From whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord. He didn't say from people. The, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And so, does God give him the help in his time, in, in, the help he needs in his time of distress? Absolutely. We do not read about it here in Matthew, though. Matthew just leaves this part out, but Luke is, is such a, he's such a more meticulous writer than Matthew was. Luke twenty two forty three tells us that after Jesus prayed this first time, uh, twenty two forty three, that an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Yes, God did give him the strength that he needed while he took these steps, right? He goes to pray. With all the group, he takes the inner group, those that he can really be intimate with. He tells them his burdens. Then he goes to God and he asks for help. And yes, God gives him help. And you know what? Praise God because if you or me or any believer out there goes to God and prays for help and strength, if we humble ourselves and ask, God will help us as well too. Absolutely 100%. Now detour for a moment for a moment from the five principles that we all should be practicing because we'll get back to four. But I want to point this out. Does God give Jesus the help that he wanted? There's a difference. God will give you the help that you need. God won't always give you the help that you want. And we see that here because no, God did not give Jesus the help that he wanted. Jesus said, let this cup pass from me. What was he saying? Oh, Lord God, I don't want to go through this trial. Lord God, I don't want to go to the cross. 
I'm going to be separated from you. They're going to beat me. They're going to kill me. Lord, I don't want to go to the cross. And we know from history, we know right now, you can just read another little bit from this, and we know that God did not allow him. God made him go to the cross. So God didn't give him the help that he wanted because then he wouldn't have gone to the cross for the sinners of the world. But God gave him the help that he needed. So that's important when we're asking for God for help. We may have a specific thing in mind that we're asking for help for, but God may not give us the help that we want. But always look, because God will give you help, but it is the help that you really need. Okay? Was Jesus okay with that? Yes, he was. Because as we keep looking here, right after this, we get to the five, the fifth principle that Jesus practiced in verse 39 that every Christian should be practicing. Where? Look at here. He says, right after he prays, go back to 39. Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Then he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He prays and asks God for his petition or request, but then he leaves whether God answers the prayer or not up to God. Notice it wasn't, Lord, this is what I want and I believe it and you're just going to do it because I said. No, Jesus prays and he gives his petition before God and then he practices the fifth, excuse me, the fourth principle out of the, out of the five. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, let your will be done. Every follower of Christ needs to practice this principle especially. Because here's the biggest reason. God is nobody's genie. God is not a bellhop that is waiting for you to ding your bell. And then he's going to run to you with every whim that you're in need of. Oh, Lord, oh, oh, I, I need this. No, God's not a genie. Uh, uh, Lord, uh, today I want, uh, I'm going to rub the magic Bible, and uh, Lord, I want this. No, sorry, God doesn't say anywhere in his word, I'm there for any little whim that you want. Oh, yes, Massa. Yes, Massa. No, God is no genie. God is the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth. And the way I look at it is like this. What if I ask God for something for myself in prayer, that's not his will for me. Do I really want something that's not God's will for me to happen? No, I don't. Because you know why? I know that the Bible says his will for me is perfect. His will for me is good. My will for me is not always good. I know I want things for myself that aren't so good. And I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge that. And I've made lots of mistakes in, in the past before praying for things that I really don't need but I sure want them, but it's not what I need. And so God's will for me is the best. And we need to be solid in the fact that if we pray for something and it's not God's will, that we're not going to get it. And we should thank him for that. Because if we get something that we want, that's not good for us, then it's bad for us. And we know the Bible says that only God gives, only the Lord gives good gifts to those that are around him. He doesn't give things that are bad. Now, sadly, this truth that Jesus practices here is not very popular as a whole in Christianity today. Why? Well, because people have been twisting the Bible and teaching that as long as you pray and have faith and ask for whatever you want, 
Oh, Lord, I want a mansion in Beverly Hills. Rub the magic Bible. Yes, Lord, and I believe it. Lord, I want to win the lottery. Yes, Lord, let me win the lottery. Praise God, and I know I believe it, so I got it. That is a very popular teaching in Christendom today. Yet, it's not what we see Jesus Christ practice as an example in his fourth principle that he practiced in the garden. In his petition and prayer to God, he gave his petition, and then he closed with, nevertheless, not as I will, but let your will be done. I don't want I can get going all day long on this, but I just want to say it's so sad when people just don't follow God's word and claim to be his followers. These types of people that come up with teachings like this are ruining the name of God and Christ for many people. Many atheists, many agnostics look at this and they say, wow, look at that, you know, that's... Is that, is that real, you know? And then when it doesn't happen, then those believers are angry, and, and it's just a devastating thing. Anyway, Christians, if you're a real follower of Christ, please follow the example that Christ gives you here. And don't treat God like a genie in your prayers. Ask for what you will ask for, okay? Just like Jesus did here. Ask for what you will ask for. But then always, if it's something that you are personally wanting, there are certain things that we can pray for in the Bible that we know, you know, God, I need your provision. And we know that that's 100%. God's going to give you his provision. But we always must end with things that are just for us with, nevertheless, not my will, but let your will be done. And we need to keep that as a focus of our prayers when we're asking for something for ourselves personally. Moving forward. So Jesus gets alone with God, his only true help. And he petitions him for deliverance. And God gives him the help he needs instead of the help he wants. And I will say this, thank God for that. Had God given Jesus the help that he wanted, he would have never gone to the cross and died for our sins. He would have never been the propitiation for our sins to cleanse us from our sins by his blood. So I thank God that he did not give Jesus the help that he wanted, but he gave him the help that he needed. And after he gives him the help that he needs, he finishes up his prayer, putting the power and the answer to answer the prayer in God's hands and not his own. And what does he do next? Look at verses 40 and 41. It says, the Bible says, Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. What does Jesus do? He finishes up his first round of prayer. Then he comes and he finds his disciples, the weak in the flesh disciples, sleeping. Guess what? They failed him. And you know what? People will always fail you. It's a rule in our house. I kind of, it's an ongoing thing with my sons, especially with my younger son. Even this morning, I, you know, we were just talking about something and, and he was depressed about something somebody did or said. And I said, you know what, little boy? I said, people will always fail you. But you know what? Before, don't get mad at me because when I say that, because I know that you're going to fail me because guess what? I fail myself, okay? I fail myself every day. So you don't only fail me, my family and my beloveds out there all over the world, but I fail myself every day and I'm sure that I fail you every day too because guess what? God teaches us a lesson in that. We cannot trust in others 
We cannot put our trust in others. Where does my help come from? Remember Psalm 121? My help comes from the Lord, right? Maker of heaven and earth. My help doesn't come from people. I can't rely on others. I can't rely on myself. I can only rely on God. And what does Jesus do after they failed him? As the great leader that he was and is, he rebukes them for not standing watch and praying for him. And then he commands them again to stand watch and to keep praying. Again, you cannot rely on yourself. What does Christ do next? He goes to his disciples. He says, hey, watch, keep watching, keep praying. Come on, guys, let's go. Let's go. We got to keep going. We got to keep finishing this race. What does he do next? Read verses 42 through 44. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. What did Jesus just do? Jesus just practiced the fifth and final principle in the garden that all Christians should be practicing. Jesus says, and he goes and prays twice, and he prays this. If this cup cannot pass from me, let your will be done. Notice the difference between that prayer or those two prayers and the first prayer. The first prayer was, Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. The second type of prayer that he prays twice is, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Notice that they're different. They're not the same. I always thought that for years I read those prayers and I always thought he was praying three times the same thing, but he didn't. He prays once the first time and then the second two times he prays, he prays different, differently. What does he do here? What does the, the change of prayer mean? And where is the fifth principle in this prayer? Well, God shows Jesus that his will is not to answer his prayer, right? God sent the angel, the angel strengthened him, but God showed Jesus that his will was not to answer Jesus' prayer. Jesus then understands God's path for him and his will for his life and his situation, and instead of Jesus praying against God's will, Jesus here promotes or practices the fifth principle. Jesus submits to God's will for the situation, and then he prays to accept the fate that God has for him. So the fifth principle is submitting to God's will after he reveals it to you and praying to accept it, not praying to be against it and to fight God. Many times, God's will for our situation in our lives is not our will. Many times. I'll repeat that again. God's will for your life and your situation is not our will. Okay? And the true follower of Christ must practice this fifth principle and we must submit with all our hearts to God and say, no matter what path that you want me to take, if this cup shall not pass from me, then Lord, let it be done if that's your will. I can speak from experience and I can say this, that if you would have told me 10 years ago 
that my path and my journey and my experience would be what they are right now, I would have told you they were crazy. I would have told them, or you, if you would have told me that you were crazy. I would have never, ever, ever picked the path that I'm on right now for myself. I had a whole different plan set up for myself and set up for me now. But since I've been serving Jesus for the last 15 years, and I've surrendered to his plan and will for my life, and I've stopped pushing for my own plan, and my own will to be done, I have been living out His will and not my own. And praise God for that. Because again, His will for your life is much better than your will for your life. Again, my current path is not what I have cho- would not is not what I would have chosen 10, 15 years ago. But since I've been serving Jesus and practicing this fifth principle, I have to say, nevertheless, Lord. Not my will, Lord, let your will be done. Whether I like it or not, God's will is better for me and you than our will is for me and you. So after he goes the third time, submits to God's plan for his life with a prayer of acceptance, what does he do? Verses 45 and 46, Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What does he do? He puts his faith and has works by it. After God showed him his will, he could have just, you know, given him that good lip service. But what did he do? He didn't just give God lip service. He came back with his physical being. And he submitted to God's plan personally. And he returned physically instead of running away. What happens? He then unfortunately finds his disciples sleeping again. He wakes them up again, but this time he tells them, Hey guys, you missed the boat. They're already here. Judas and all the betrayers were standing basically right there when he said it. Because again, verse 47, While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. So as he was telling them, Hey guys, wake up. You missed it. They're standing right there, and they weren't watching. And they weren't praying. Now, had the disciples been practicing these five principles, ironically, that Christ practiced, they would have not fallen asleep because they'd have kept each other awake and they would have kept each other serving God. Because guess what? They would have had, if they would have relied upon one another in their small group and they would have been bouncing off each other how they felt and that they were tired, they would have encouraged one another to stay awake and to keep praying and to keep watching for Christ. So here we see the disciples fail Jesus again as people will fail you. Recapping, the five principles that Christ practiced in the garden were in order. Number one, praying before major events or before you do anything for that matter for God's help and his guidance. Number one. Number two, having a small group of intimate Christian friends, at least one, no less than one. There's no I in team cannot be alone in this Christian journey. Got to have at least one that you can be yourself around, that you can just, you know, bear your soul to when you're having problems. Number three, getting alone after you're going to your humanly godly support group, getting alone with the only one that can truly help you, God, your heavenly father. And number four, 
praying and asking for God, for your petitions or requests, but then leaving whether God answers that prayer up to God, not you. Asking for your petitions and your requests, yes, but ending with, not my will, let your will be done. It's a very major key to all these principles. Coming to God in prayer for help. Spilling your guts. Telling God what you want. But then ending with, God, it's your will, not mine, Lord. I just want your will in this situation. Forget about my will. And number five, submitting to God's will after he reveals it to you. Because he will reveal to you his will. He will make it very clear what his will is to you. And that your will is either right or wrong. But he'll show you that your will or his will, whatever, you have to submit to God's will after he reveals it to you and pray to accept it instead of fighting against it. What did practicing these five principles in the garden allow Christ to accomplish? Well, the Bible tells us in Isaiah 53, 7, and Acts 8, 2 confirms that. Listen to this. He was oppressed, speaking of Christ now, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And you could add there, he didn't complain. He wasn't grumbling. Goes on. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Listen to this. Why or how was he able to go through the torture before the cross? The mocking, the torture, being spit on, and... How or why was he able to go through the torture of the cross? Nails in the hands, nails in the feet, people mocking him. How could he have gone through this type of torture having the kind of fortitude or the countenance that he did? Why? How? How was he able to do that? Because he practiced these five principles that we read about today. Because he practiced these five principles, God gave him strength and peace in his soul. And he didn't complain, even though he was wrongly accused and tortured to death. When a person has no peace in their hearts or souls, they complain. They murmur. They moan, right? When you have no peace, when you're not having peace from God, you're going to complain, you're going to murmur, and you're going to moan. But not Christ. Because he laid his life completely in God's hands, and submitted to God's will and not his own, and had all the key ingredients and practiced the correct godly principles to make it through the tortures of the cross. That's what Christ did, and that's how he was able to go through the things that he did without grumbling, without complaining, and with strength and fortitude from God. I ask you today, are you a follower of Christ, but you lack the strength and fortitude to make it through the tough situations you go through in life? I, I exhort you, my brothers and sisters, start practicing these five principles that Christ practiced in the garden. And God will give you whatever strength you need to make it through whatever you could ever face in life. That's my exhortation to my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ out there to non-believers, to those that aren't following Christ today that may find themselves listening to this sermon. You find yourself and you just sit here and you're like, I don't understand all these things, Pastor Ed. All these things are way over my head. And you know what? All this stuff, in fact, it sounds crazy to me. All this, you know, praying for God's will and not my own and all this, you know, having a small support group. Pastor Ed, that just sounds crazy. Well, please, 
I don't want you to worry. They will sound crazy. And I can tell you right now, you won't understand them. Because all the things that I just spoke of today are all spiritual things. And if you're not saved, or you're not a real Christian, and you're not a real follower of Christ, you're not a spiritual being. The Bible says that only a spiritual man or a woman can understand the spiritual things of God. But I, I, I want you to ask you to please not to get wrapped up in the not understanding and all this sounding crazy stuff. Because that'll come if you surrender to God and you allow him to save you. If you allow God to save you, he will help you understand all these spiritual things and many more as well. If you are not saved or a real Christian today, the only thing I hope that you take out of this sermon is this. God loves you so much today. And the only reason that Christ even went to the cross in the first place was because of his love for you and his desire to save you from your sin. If you will turn to him today and accept his love in Christ, he will save you from your sins and you can have peace in your soul and you will start to understand these spiritual things that I spoke of today and many other spiritual things as well. So I exhort you, please. If you don't know Christ, surrender to him today and he will help you through everything in life. And even when life is tough, he could be there and you can go and cry out to him and lay your petitions before him and he'll hear you and he'll give you the help that you need just like he gives me and just like he gave Christ at the cross. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this message, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord God, for these five awesome principles that you showed us here in the garden. Lord God, just amazing, Lord God. I, I never would have seen all these things, Lord, in this scripture, Lord, had you not shown them to me by your spirit. So Lord, I just pray Lord, that I and those listening, Lord God, not, Lord God, would not be hearers of the word only, but Lord, we'd be doers of the word. Lord, that we would make an effort, Lord God, to go out of our way to do and to fulfill and to work on have, you know, practicing all these principles that you showed us here in the garden. Because they're real, you did them, Lord. And if we're yours, Lord, we're Christians, and we're, then we need to be followers of Christ, Lord. And this is what Christ did. So I pray for every brother or sister in Christ out there that's listening, that they would indeed practice the same things that Jesus practiced in the garden here in these five principles. Lord, I pray for those that may not know you today, Lord, that are listening to this message, or just all those all over the world. I pray, dear God, that you would draw them and call them to Christ Jesus. That they would not be worried about all the not understanding and the craziness, Lord God, but that they would just come and understand one thing, your love for them, your grace for them, and your desire to save them from their sins. I pray that you would help them turn to you, Lord. Help them to see your love even more and bring them to you, Lord. Bring them to your saving love by your saving grace. We love you and we praise you and we thank you, dear God. We ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.